Questions can be for many purposes and reveal many things. A question can be used in the search of knowledge or wisdom. A question can be used to teach. For instance, in law school, my law school at the time used what was called the Socratic method. They would ask the students questions, and the students would respond to the questions with answers, and oftentimes that was used for you not only to get the correct answer, if you will, but the process of getting the correct answer. Uh, like I said, sometimes uh, people ask questions because they're seeking information, knowledge, or they're hopefully seeking wisdom. But sometimes questions can reveal things. They can reveal attitudes. They can reveal ignorance. Uh, they can reveal, again, like I said, many things. Uh, going back to my law school first year, one of the most difficult things in the beginning of law school at the first semester was how much information is enough to regurgitate? You know, how much do I need to know because I've not ever taken a law school test before? And so there was great apprehension. And so uh, many things uh, caused me to come with this uh, decision. But my decision was once I took an exam, whether it was in law school or for the bar, I would never discuss the question because there's no way I could change it. And all I would do was worry about it. And one of the things that convinced me of that was in law school, we were walking out a group of students from uh, civil procedure. And one of the guys jokingly said, well, let, let me back up. The problem with talking about law school is you gotta explain things before you see that it's funny. Uh, there is what's called a crossover question. A crossover question is like, if you're in, uh, using civil procedure, if you're in civil, civil procedure, but then there's a question about, let's say, the Constitution, that would be considered a crossover question. And so as we were walking out, uh, the one student said, did you see that really tough, well, that really uh, big uh, crossover question on jurisdiction? And one of the other people said, yeah, it was really hard. And his response was, there was a crossover question on jurisdiction? You see, his question revealed his ignorance. So a lot of times when we ask things, it's because we're kind of ignorant. But there are times in like in what's gonna we're gonna discuss today is that questions reveal motives and character. So there are gonna be those, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and a lawyer from the Pharisees, are gonna ask Jesus questions. They're not gonna ask Jesus questions to seek information or knowledge. They're not asking him because they, they want to know these things. They're doing it in an attempt to trap him, to cause him to have difficulty. And so the questions aren't legitimate in the sense of seeking information or seeking knowledge or even confirming it, but as a trap. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, starting with verse 15, it says this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. So they've come not to ask this question for knowledge's sake 
or for information's sake, or for even wisdom's sake, but to cause him to be trapped. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth, and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Here's a little bit of wisdom in this. When people start flattering you before they ask you the question, watch out for the question. It's just the way it is. People tend to be that way. For instance, when you get a phone call, usually it's the third thing that people ask you is why they really call. They'll call you and say, how are you doing? And you'll tell them, thinking, well, they're interested. And they might say, well, how are the kids? And then whatever. And then they'll say, I need you to buy something. That was the purpose of the call. It wasn't how to find out how you're doing or how your kids are doing. And so sometimes if you want to save time, say, let me stop you. What is it that you really called for? And so they start out talking about, oh, you're wonderful and you're smart and, and you don't play favorites. So we're going to ask you a question. Jesus sees through them. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? You see, they want to put Jesus on what is called the horns of dilemma. If he says it is not lawful to pay Caesar a poll tax, and then they will go to Caesar, this guy is causing an insurrection. He's telling people not to pay you taxes, and that's how government runs, to go crush him. And if you don't think so, just don't pay your taxes this year. They'll find you real quick, okay? Or if he says, it's okay to pay taxes, then they're going to say, well, then really you're not the Messiah. Because the Messiah has come to set up the kingdom, and, and we don't need to have this overlord, because Israel is finally going to be free. And so if you're saying pay taxes, then you cannot be the Messiah. So they think, okay, we've got Jesus. No matter how he answers, he's stuck. Now the sad thing is, is too often we see it, how brilliant Jesus answers the question. But it's not the brilliance of how he answers the question. The brilliance is the truth of his answer. So let's look at his answer. But Jesus perceived their malice. Notice this is, an, this is malice, evil thoughts. And said, why are you testing me? You hypocrite. So if he's truthful, if he doesn't, whatever, then they've already got what he just told them. They have malice. They're hypocrites. Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar. Now, back then, the emperor loved his face. He put his face or her face on all the coins. It was interesting. I've seen a coin that uh, on TV, I haven't seen it in person, uh, for um, the Queen of Egypt. All of a sudden, her name just escaped me. Um, Cleopatra. Cleopatra's image on her coin is not beautiful. I mean, she's got a little, kind of a big nose and at least in my standard, not that beautiful. But you have somewhat of a likeness, an image of the ruler. And they love to place their images 
Now, our country's done a little different. We usually use dead guys or dead ladies to, to put on our money. Uh, but uh, the emperor currently living, so his image is there. And so they said, then he said, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So if the coin is Caesar's, give it back to him. Render, give to Caesar what is Caesar. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and to God the things that are God. Now, here's the deal. All the way back in the beginning of the Scriptures, all the way back in the beginning of Genesis, when God said, let us make man, He said, let us make man in our image. So God has placed His image on us. And so Jesus is saying, you can give the coins to Caesar because it has his image, but you need to give yourself to God because God has his image on you. So I want you to do something for me. It's a little homework. The next time you look in a mirror and you look at yourself and you say, oh, what a beautiful or handsome person you are. Or, you know, I need a nose job. Or maybe I need Botox. Or maybe, you know, the hair's a little whatever. Or, am I really getting that old? As you're questioning yourself about all of these different things and either so impressed or unimpressed, um, speaking about impressed, I, I was a uh, member of a business group who tried to, um, to give business to other people and make referrals. And every week we would have two people who would give a little speech on their business to try to get you more information so you refer more and one of the introductions was that they were you were supposed to tell them something that nobody else knew so one of the things i never did it but i always wanted to i wanted to say well the one of the things you don't know about me is i look exactly like a young brad pitt nobody knows that but now you do and you see um that a way they would Get that, but you know it, it's weird. And so, when you look at yourself in the mirror, I want you to say, no matter how beautiful I am, or how much I need to change the image, that that image looking back to me is the image of God. And have I been rendering to Him that image? Have I been rendering to Him what is His? So you see, Jesus not only is smart enough, if we will, to avoid the horns of dilemma, he teaches them and us a very specific understanding that we're God and that we need to be in God's business and doing God's things because we are in his image and we are to render to him those things that are in his image. And hearing this, they were amazed. And leaving him, they went away. Again, he gave them an answer to their question that was malicious. He gave them not an answer that avoided the issue, but gave them an answer that cut right to the heart of the situation. Give to the government whatever is the government, to give to God 
all that is gone. So the questions aren't finished. And on that day, some Sadducees who, were, who say there are no resurrection. So we don't know as much about the Sadducees because they pretty much died out in about the first century. Um, the, most Judaism today is based on the Pharisees' view of things. The Sadducees were an interesting anomaly. They were liberal in the sense of they were very influenced by Greek thought and wisdom. But on the other hand, they were very, if you will, exceptionally conservative because the only scriptures they thought were valid was the Torah. The first five books of the... So if you wanted to influence something that they were talking about, then you had to use the first five books of the Torah. Whereas the Pharisees used the whole scriptures as the whole scripture. But then, like I said, but they didn't believe in a resurrection. And one of the ways to remember that is that they don't believe in a resurrection. They're sad, you see. So that's one of the ways you can tell the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee. And so they don't believe in a resurrection. So they came to Jesus and questioned him. Again, this question is not to gain knowledge. It is to ask a question to the point of absurdity. And so here's the question. Asking, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies, Having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. So, using the Torah, they say, here's what Moses says. But the purpose of this law was to raise up children, not the purpose was to keep marrying just because. Now, there were seven brothers with us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. Now, if I were the seventh, I'd be real concerned that this was the black widow, you know, because everybody dies around her. But, you know, this is their question. So seven brothers die, no children, never accomplishing what Moses' purpose was. Last of all, the woman dies. It's about time. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? for they all had married her. Question. In absurdity. They could have stopped at two or three, but you know they wanted to make it seven. But Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken. Okay. And I'm going to tell you why. You're, because you and do not understand the Scriptures nor the power of God. He says, you have a false understanding, your false understanding is because you do not understand the Scriptures, and your false understanding is because you do not understand the power of God. And all too often, we have a misunderstanding because we don't understand the power of God in many parts of our lives. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now, if you've been married forever and you're in so much marital bliss, or if you've been married for a very short time and you're so much marital bliss, Jesus just kind of rocked your world because you're not married in heaven. Now, if you're not so 
fortunate to be in marital bliss. And you're living in a marriage that you could just say, you know, I, I promise that I'd love you to the end of time. I'm just praying for the end of time. You got hope here. Because you're not married to that bozo. Okay? He says, it's, it's like that. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, so he goes, okay, first off, you're mistaken. What happens here on earth does not necessarily happen in heaven. You're not married there. But here's the power of God. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? And again, Jesus, knowing who the Sadducees are, are going to quote scriptures from the Torah so that they will use them and understand that it is binding information. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When God said these things, he was talking about these three men when they were dead. But they're not. Because God is the God of the living. I am the God of Abraham. Abraham is in the presence of God. I am the God of Isaac. Isaac is and now is in the presence of God. And I am the God of Jacob, that one who was crafty and did all these things, who became Israel. I am the God of Jacob. He is the God of the living, not the dead. Which means those loved ones who are believers, who have gone before, he is the God of. So for instance, my mother Emily, who's been gone a number of years, her body's not here. But God is the God of Emily Irene Davis. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. You see, because Jesus teaches with authority. He didn't teach like the Pharisees who are talking about some abstract concept. He's knocking, talking about the Pharisees who are mistaken in their concept. Why? Because Jesus came from heaven. He knew exactly what was happening in heaven. He knew that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were in heaven. He taught as one having authority which is amazes people because so many people, well, you know, it could be this, it could be that, it could be the other. Jesus knows and teaches. So again, a question trying to get him to talk theology. They're upended because they, number one, don't understand. Number two, they don't realize the Scriptures, even though they think, oh, we know all about the Torah. And third, they just don't understand the power of God. And let me talk a little bit about the resurrection and the power of God. You see, God just doesn't reanimate us. God just doesn't take the body and just get it to move again. Those of you who love the story of young uh, of Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, that wasn't a resurrection. That was a reanimation. They were trying to put movement 
back into the body. And those of you who are aware of, and I would recommend if you've never seen this movie, Young Frankenstein, some of you are pretty sure that you have an abnormal brain. And so this abnormal person is wandering around. Jesus doesn't regenerate you. Jesus resurrects you. He doesn't simply resurrect your body. He resurrects all that you are. Body, soul, mind. And when you are raised again, you are raised as the perfect image of God in this new body. But you are you. You're not some kind of energizer bunny. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. You know, the kind of the attitude is, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So, okay, well, they put down the Sadducees. He's been putting us down, but finally he's really ripped them to, yay, Jesus. So they get together and have a little conference. And one of them, a lawyer. This is one of the few times a lawyer's brought up and not criticized. So I like this verse. Most other times it's, woe to you lawyers. You know, like, okay. But one of the lawyers asked him a question, testing him. It's, you know, that's not so good. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, basically what the lawyer's saying is, you know, there's over 600 commandments in the scriptures, and the Pharisees have placed a whole bunch of other commandments around those commandments to get you to not ever violate those commandments. So he's saying, okay, in, as a matter of priority, which is the biggest one? What, which, is, which is a number one law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Jesus says, you want to know the greatest one? Love God. But don't just love God a little bit. Love God totally, fully, completely. But then he goes on and says this. The second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus, in essence, says exactly what the apostles say when they say, how is it that you say that you love God who you cannot see? You do not love your brother or your sister who you can see. And let me modify that a little bit by saying, how can you say you love God who has no need of anything if you don't love your brother or sister who has need of everything? So Jesus says, if you want to love God, you love your neighbor, you love your brother, and you express that love of God by loving your neighbor. And if you only do what is in God's interest, and you only knew, do what's in your neighbor's interest, then you won't violate the 600 plus command. Now, Jesus has his turn. He's going to ask the question. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? 
And they said to him, the son of David. So they got the first question right. This is more like, the, if you will, the Socratic method. They're, he's asking a question to lead to the next question to get them to understand something. So he says, okay, you got the first question right. They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, and that Jesus is going to quote scripture, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So Jesus goes, okay, if the Messiah, the Christ, is the son of David, then how is it David calling the son his Lord? If David then calls him Lord, how is it he is his son? So he's asking a question to get them to understand the scripture. He's asking legitimate questions so that they might gain knowledge and wisdom. But no one was able to answer him a word. Here are the Pharisees who pride themselves on not only knowing the law, but knowing all the extra commands surrounding the law and pretending that they completely honor them and carry them out and never break them. And yet, everybody's expecting the Christ, the Messiah, to be there. So you would think it would be a topic that people would discuss. Well, here's what's going on here. If the Messiah is the son of David, and David says, my Lord, then there ought to be at least some discussion what's happening here. But apparently they didn't take this course in theology. Because no one was able to answer him a word. So I'll give you the answer. Because Jesus existed before David. Even though David was an ancestor of Jesus, Jesus existed before David. Not only did he exist before David, he was the one who was put in charge of creation. He's the one who's been in charge of not only creation, but holding everything together. The reason the world doesn't fall apart, the reason the atoms don't fall apart, the reason the chairs don't fall apart is because Jesus holds them together. And the reason they do is for his now the sad thing if they were truly wanting to know information they were really really wishing to know and understand wisdom on a topic as big as who is the Messiah you would think at least they would say well, how can that be? And then Jesus could just tell them in better ways than I just did what I just said. But notice, they said, not only was no one able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. The one was the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The one who knows all. Instead of seeking him out, instead of seeking 
His wisdom, instead of seeking His way, decided to stop asking questions. But the reason they stopped asking questions was not because they were wise and not because they had knowledge, but because they no longer figured out that their question could ever trap him or dissuade him or cause him to fall. The purpose of their question had just been obliterated. So let me tell you one little thing before I finish. God is not afraid of your question. You can ask God all kinds of questions. But make sure you're asking the question with the proper motive. Not as a trap or as a way to disqualify. God, why is it that I'm suffering? Or God, why is it this happened? Or God, why is it that one? Or how come, God, I've prayed and prayed and prayed and you just haven't changed it? Those questions are all valid and whatever. And God may give you an answer or God may stay silent and say, just keep trusting me. But God is not afraid of your question. The lawyer asked the question, and got some pretty good information. It will, even the Sadducees asked a question, even though it was improper, and got some good information. And the Pharisees, despite the fact they were seeking to trap him and place him on the horns of a dilemma, got some excellent information about who we are in the likeness of God. So sometimes in your questioning, you can discover great depth of truth of God. So never be afraid to ask questions. Just make sure the questions are not for trap or to ignore it, but to gain wisdom, to gain knowledge of who our God is, to be better at following Him. You have heard it said, there are no stupid questions. I tell you that there are. A stupid question is, if your teacher just gets through saying, writes it on the board, 2 plus 2 equals 4. And while that formula is on the board, you raise your hand and say, teacher, how much is 2 plus 2? That's a stupid question. Because you were already given the information. But you know, God, as the perfect teacher, will even accept stupid. So long as you're ready for the answer. You build your life on Him. You build your life on his teaching. You even build your life on not quite knowing but pursuing the truth. Because we are his disciples. Which means we are learners. But not just that we are learners that I know 2 plus 2 is 4. But that we are learners 
so that we become like him. That's the whole term of Christian, is little Jesus. So when we look in the mirror, in the next 15 minutes or tomorrow morning, however much often you'd like to look at yourself, ask yourself, do I really appreciate that I'm in the image of God? And do I really follow Him as His disciple? And all God's people say,